Welcome to our journey. Our journey toward a more perfect union. Our more perfect union is an experiment, a grand experiment in something we all cherish, democracy. Welcome to our Radio Roundtable with higher education consultant, Dr. Michael Walker-Jones, Harvard's Executive Director for Health and Human Rights, Dr. Natalie Alinos, and from Beacon Hill, Representative Jeff Roy, as we the people celebrate the journey of America toward a more perfect union. Welcome to A More Perfect Union. I'm Nick Remesong. Today, along with my uh, co-host, Chris Wolf, uh, joining us from our radio roundtable of regulars, we have Harvard's Executive Director for Health and Human Rights, Dr. Natalie Alinos. From Beacon Hill, our representative, Jeff Roy. Also with us, our station manager, Peter J. Good morning. Good morning, all. Well, we have a main topic today that I feel will lead us to an even larger and more varied number of offshoots than usually. I'm good at offshoots. I'm, I'm there. I offshoots think we've branches. always stayed on topic. We've never but done offshoots <laughs> in the 70 episodes we've done together. We've already, always stayed focused. Why oh, yeah. The main topic today being President Biden's second State of the Union address delivered on February 7th. Now, from that... Uh, wellhead. I can envision gushing springs of discussions on uh, Social Security and Medicaid, jobs creation or loss thereof, oil prices and record oil company profits, rampant inflation, and as always, and as always, whether or not the economy is headed up, down, or sideways, and just who is responsible for that movement. Now, before I open today's uh, proceedings, I do want to remind our, our panelists that shouting invectives back and forth will only be tolerated if one is clad in furs. There. The <laughs> rules of engagement are established. First volley, please. Liar! 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 I'm sorry, but I thought that the white balloon that Marjorie marched around with was a nice touch. She's always one for props. No, she's a prop in and of herself. Um, yes, there was uh, there was that. Uh, now, starting with that, just that's kind of a side, another side, a little side branch. I personally... And I know that a lot of people see this as a, a you know, a, a total lack of civility, improper procedure and shouldn't happen. You're talking about our show or Congress, which. <laughs> <laughs> well, the Congress, Congress and, and in particular uh, states of the union address, they've been ah. uh, they've been vocal of late. So yes. I agree with you, Nick, I don't think it should happen, but I was talking to my husband and he said mm. it, it brought up, you know, sort of a real bite and it forced him exactly. to think on his feet and to engage mm -hmm. and the stage, um, you know, talks that, you know, are pre-prepared, pre-prepared mm -hmm. are useful, but actually this thinking on your feet. And mm -hmm. he felt that it showed a real Biden that's able to to really, you know, take the hits and, he you know, we know that politicians take the hits. So he liked it. I, on the other hand, feel like it's I do think it's a, it's inappropriate. And I, I don't know. But well, Let's go yeah, back. Do you to, ever get heckled? Sorry, just, just no. I've yeah. been heckled. I've been heckled at home. My wife heckles me quite constantly. But, well, you know, par Parliament is always going. Why so calm? Yeah, there you go. The mother of parliaments, which is a mis misquote, but that, that's what it's become. The mother of all parliaments, the British Parliament. I mean, that's that. No one's ever quiet. It is constant. 
chatter going on. There's constant. Oh, and the, yeah, there's a whole protocol around it. You know, like the way you, you have your order paper mm -hmm. for the day, you're supposed to wave it in a particular wave way it. or yes, not. But usually and, they're waving and and, and, and cheering away. and jeering and cheering um, and jeering. And there's a lot of ritual to it as well. Uh, but uh, that's it, not. The, mm -hmm. the case, obviously, with the, the U.S. Congress. Well, uh, it, it, we're the, new the, at it. We're new um, at it. So give us time and we'll, we'll you've, establish. You've had rules. more experience than almost every other country except uh, England. So, mm, um, you know, you, you can't throw that defense out anymore. Um, you have your own <laughs> traditions. And and uh, it's to me, it just struck me as more of a projection, as always, than mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. an uh, actual criticism. But that's just me. Yeah, yeah, I would say criticism was not so much as, you know, just kind of you could tell that she was sitting there on tender hooks, just waiting for the first opportunity to scream it. I mean, it was okay. just I did. Uh, I will agree that I do find it um, lacking in decorum, mm -hmm. um, but I'll also share been listening to a lot of the talks about the speech and about those moments uh, and learned that many of the things that we thought was. Joe Biden, uh, on you know, in the moment on his feet, were actually scripted. That they knew that these things were going to happen, so they had prepared text. Uh, I was listening to MSNBC, and they were saying they were sitting there listening to the speech, and they could see these lines built into the speech uh, as these uh, moments were unfolding. So, you know, they knew that they were going to be setting. The Republicans up for a trap. They walked right into the trap and followed it to the T on, on script. Mm -hmm. To me, that's sad that they could predict that uh, these people would be as obnoxious as they were, but also humorous that uh, they walked right into it. And I think the the whole piece with uh, not touching Social Security and Medicare is the primest example. Mm -hmm. because there is a line in the text of the speech that was done before that says stand up for the uh, seniors and stand up for Social Security and Medicare uh, was right, right in the speech. And it looked like an impromptu set of comments. But uh, these fools uh, walked right into it. Now they are uh, on record uh, that they cannot touch Social Security and Medicare. Thank God they can't. But my God, what a uh, what a what a moment. And it just shows you how much how much theater is involved uh, in this whole uh, State of the Union uh, piece and how they, you know, distribute the speech in advance. And uh, they do press conferences before to highlight what he's going to focus on. And then the sheer length of it. I yeah, I, I could not believe how long that speech went yeah, but it was on. 73 minutes. Yeah. 73 minutes it's uh yeah. it's astounding but uh, yeah yeah if i can theater, still... i wish some people would sit down and shut up and uh let the speech go on and uh, and the other i'll make one final comment because i was watching uh speaker mccarthy's face throughout mm -hmm. yeah and i was amazed at how weak he looked and he had absolutely no control of his caucus and he was could not do anything uh, to control the situation. And he just sat there like like a dog with his tail between his legs. And uh, mm. you no, know, that's that's what a weak speaker uh, looks like. 
and just a sign of uh, what his two years uh, are going to be like and just how ineffective uh, he will be in the face of these morons. Anyway, we've been talking about President's Day uh, and the presidential speech, the presidential moment, mm-hmm. which mm. obviously took place on Tuesday. Um, and just, you know, whether scripted or not, you know, everybody gave Biden points for being feisty, combative. Uh, they felt that he really set himself up to address any complaints about whether or not he's really ready for another term. Uh, yeah. And does he have the tenacity to be able to put it all together? Mm. So I, I think it's going to be uh, a, a strong launch for him with respect to, you know, a 2024 aspirations. So um, I think that it's, uh, he's getting high marks all around. So uh, that one struck me as interesting. Yeah, there was a uh, a couple of comments that I heard that really resonated with me. One of them was the idea that these State of the Union addresses are extremely low tech for no reason, that they should be higher tech, that they should be giving videos, they should be uh, uh, putting up charts, they should be using technology oh. uh, to a much better effect. Uh, uh, you you, you put up a chart. I think if you put up a chart, you're going to lose whoever's watching at home. Charts, uh, um, I don't know about that, but but video, yeah, you could probably. Well, don't forget the radio listeners. Still, people still listen on uh, the radio, so a chart wouldn't uh, be too helpful there. But oh, it also might be a violation of the rules to use uh, props. Uh, I know in the uh, Massachusetts legislature, it is a violation of rules to uh-huh. use charts and other props. Uh, while you're speaking for the rostrum, so so no white balloons, yeah. <laughs> uh, to, but talking of um, what people can see and and hear, just a, a quick look at the ratings. It was uh, catastrophically low, like 27 mm-hmm. million, and seventy three percent of the people who did tune in were over fifty five. Mm-hmm. So I think you got two critical pieces of data there, uh, which don't bode well for politics of any kind in this country, let alone. A specific one like Joe Biden's re-election hopes, because I think most people are just tuning out. That's over 90 percent of the population is tuning out. And, you know, obviously, at least half of uh, the three quarters of those under 55. So pretty tricky. Even with those numbers, uh, it's it still constitutes probably, as they've pointed out, the biggest hour the president has Mm -hmm. um, annually. And so, um, you know, they're going to play it for all it's worth. The Republican response, I thought, was particularly interesting this year from Sarah Huckabee Sanders. She made a good 60 to 70 percent of it about her. She talked about her mom. She talked about, you know, more than a million. She was the first president to lead the state, so on and so forth. She talks about her policies. She doesn't even mention President Biden until about four minutes in. I don't recall her talking about any policies. No, there were none. Um, not a, no, yeah. no, no. She talks about her policies, her oh, legislative yeah. accomplishments. Yep. She doesn't talk about anything on the national level. Mm-mm. But my takeaway. You talked from what, about freedom. You didn't hear her talking about freedom, and I did. Uh, you know, just she stands for freedom, and America yeah. is all about freedom. And God forbid we should take away freedoms. And I'm thinking to myself, isn't this the the party that took away the the freedom of the the woman's right to choose right. just a few months ago 
And I said, oh, no, take away no, 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 Jeff. It, that wasn't the party. That was the Supreme Court appointed by the body. they will they will they will quickly tell you oh that wasn't us yeah. even though of we course. agree with it <laughs> uh, didn't we give them a chance to overturn that Supreme uh, uh, and they yeah, yeah 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 congress can congress can immediately go and say no 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 we'll we'll correct the law right you know? freedom it's all about freedom i heard the word freedom oh, you left goodness. out justice motherhood and highway safety <laughs> <laughs> Are we back? Are we back on? We are. I I I have to say that looking the whole thing, I I thought basically she was running for office in this speech. Maybe she wants to be the next vice presidential candidate or something. Without a doubt. And, she was pitching that, I think, directly to DeSantis. And what I am curious about is how it was that it came down to her as the spokesperson. I mean, she's articulate. She was a you know, during the Trump administration, she did her job as his press secretary and, you know, combatively and whatnot. But she did the job with a thick skin and wasn't afraid to hit back where she had to. And But, but often fact free. Well, of course. <laughs> and, and truth free and, and very liberal with the creative uh, uh, juices. I think the the pants on fire rating from the, the, the people <laughs> yes. observing uh -huh. uh, her as a press secretary were, were was pretty outrageous. She's exactly. pretty young, right? I think there's something mm -hmm. about trying to highlight the age difference with President Biden. Obviously, as a woman, too. I mean, I don't know if Nikki Haley will announce. You know, it sounds like she will. Mm -hmm. um, I think it'll be difficult in that ticket. You know, I I doubt there will be a, a two women ticket. Although in mm -hmm. Massachusetts, you know, Governor. Right, uh, true. Governor and lieutenant governor, it was it's kind of amazing to have a two women ticket. I just don't think mm. we're ready when our country hasn't even had a, a female president yet. But I do think in your to your comment, Pete, on you know, being pitching herself, I assume that is what typically happens. The you know, absolutely like, elected her in order for her to be able to pitch herself. And I think it is trying to appeal to uh women voters um and maybe age. I don't know what the other mm -hmm. Yeah, she touted herself as being first woman governor at 40 versus president at 80. Uh, right. so she made that right. one uh, deliberately. Well, you no, know, she her speech was um very much in contrast to what I was hearing from President Biden in that I was hearing President Biden continuously talking about working together and touting those instances where uh, the Republicans and the Democrats had worked together and had done some great things. And, you know, him calling out uh, George Bush in the fight against AIDS and working together for that and was hoping that we could bring the parties together. And I heard that theme throughout his particular speech. But when uh, Sarah Huckabee Sanders was speaking, she used phrases like he's uh, that Biden's unfit to serve as commander in chief and that uh, he's weak and he's putting the world at risk. And uh, the one line uh, that stands out, the, the dividing line in America is no longer between right or left. The choice is between normal or crazy. And I, exactly you know, <laughs> contrast that type of hateful speech with what Biden was trying to do and bringing everyone together. And it you know reminds me of just how divisive uh, uh you know the former president was and brings back that divisive rhetoric and 
it just I, I just don't have a place in my heart to listen to that mm. type of you know that type of speech and disruption and chaos. Yeah, yeah. It belittle well, belittles yeah. everybody. Belittles the process, and uh, you know, put her. I put her in the same category of at a Marjorie Taylor Green, and mm. those two mm. can go off in the sunset together. Well, part of and it, you know it, the other piece about you know being very loose with the truth is also something that I find rather appalling. Uh, the use, for example, of CRT as a uh, as a foil when most people who open their mouths about it don't even know what it is. Exactly. The idea that there is a culture war that quote unquote the left started uh, and we didn't want to fight is. Just again, it's so divisive, Jeff, as you're pointing it out. And uh, and as Natalia said, this is even if she is 40 years old, she has no experience, didn't do any debates during the uh, during her gubernatorial campaign. And again, it's coming from a state where that kind of rhetoric rests with about a third of the folks that are out there. Again, I find it very divisive for uh, not only in terms of her language, but also find it unusual that the American public would fall into the trap of trying to at least grasp on to these untrue, unsavory kinds of uh, uh, this unsavory kind of rhetoric. What are we to do when you've got this kind of this kind of divisiveness? And yet at the same time, we know that at least 20 to 30 percent of the country really believes this stuff. Of course they do. But there's no discrimination. Also, too, I, when I heard it, you know, a choice between crazy and normal, you know, even though no individual was involved, it, it felt almost like an ad hominem attack <clears throat> because it was just so aimlessly out there. And there's there's a great statement in 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 legal practice jeff probably knows this well <clears throat> when the law is on your side scream the law when the facts are on your side scream the facts when nothing's on your side just scream mm -hmm. yeah it's just be the loudest voice and and the the only one that people can hear at the time that's it put tonnage behind your stupidity you know the other uh thing that jumped out at me from her speech was uh you know, again, I rambled on about her talking about freedom, 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 and also noticed that uh, she wants to prohibit indoctrination. And I wish people could uh, see me using the, uh, the the false quotes there and, uh, yes. you know, doing things like barring the use of the term Latinx in official state documents and uh, taking out some of the, uh, the coursework uh, in in history that uh, is important for kids to learn. How is that promoting freedom when you won't allow uh, people to uh, use the uh, phraseology or, or terms uh, that they want to use to describe either themselves or other groups? And uh, you're not going to allow kids to learn the actual history of what happened. And you're not going to allow kids to debate uh, that particular history. How in God's name does that promote freedom and equality in the United States of America? It was such a hypocritical uh, drivel that coming out of her lips, I was just so turned off, uh, as you can probably tell from my comments uh, this morning. Um, 
just absolutely unnecessary, unhelpful, and uh, not going to uh, lead this country in the direction as to where it needs to go in order to come out from this mess. You mean you actually want a modicum of logic to exist in a speech? Logos, uh, not pathos? It, it, just as much as we could, please, please, just a little. Give me a tease. Uh-huh. <laughs> well, well, I have, just... I, I've, you know, always me being one for accuracy, for understanding things, for quantifying what's going on in this world. I want to reflect a little bit on President's Day itself. Until recently, we celebrated Washington and Lincoln, two of our finest presidents. Then rather than add any more presidents, we lumped them all in. There were perhaps a few others in there of spurious intellect and quality, but nonetheless, because they're presidents, they're part of a single holiday, President's Day. My issue with President's Day, which is the third Monday in February, is that there's not much in the way of festivities other than some supposedly spectacular savings on new cars. Uh, and furniture. Not now. I they're going fast. On a uh, on a lazy boy recliner last night. Well, there you go. Yes. The President's Day. So yes. don't you go mocking this holiday. <laughs> anyway, the crass car commercialism tends to make our President's Day seem somewhat feckless mm. and less as an inspiring holiday to honor greatness in our leaders. George Washington became our first duly elected president. He being officially sworn into office on April 30th, 1789. He served two terms until March the 4th, 1797. From that time, 233 years ago till this very day, today, there have been 85,398 days where someone has held the august title and high office of president. Each one of those days is technically a president's day, be it a good one or a bad one. But did Martha ask George, how was your day? Each president's normal term of office is 1,481 good and bad days long. This is where some third grade arithmetic weighs in here. To divvy up all those President's Day celebrations and honorifics, equitably among our leaders of the free world. There are only 1,440 minutes or 86,400 seconds in any given day. Thus, aligning those 85,000-plus President's Days into a single holiday leaves us with just over one second to celebrate each one of those President's Days. That means we can celebrate Washington and other two-termers for about 50 minutes each. Fair enough. Then there's William Henry Harrison, who was in office for a scant 32 days before he died. In our President's Day festivity planner, he's good for about a half a minute, give take. Finally, and finally, we come to David Rice Acheson. Mm -hmm. He is best known for the claim that for 24 hours on Sunday, March the 4th, 1849, through noon on Monday, he was technically the acting president of the United States. On Friday, March the 2nd, the outgoing vice president, George M. Dallas, relinquished his position as president of the Senate. Congress had previously elected Atchison as the Senate president pro tempore. On Inauguration Day, March 4th, which fell on a Sunday, the term of the outgoing president, James K. Polk, ended at noon. President-elect Zachary Taylor did not take the presidential office until the very next day. In 1849, according to Presidential Succession Act of 1792, the Senate president pro tempore immediately followed the vice president in the succession. 
As Dallas's term also ended at noon on the 4th, and neither Taylor nor Vice President Millard Fillmore had sworn into office until the next day, it was claimed by Atchison's colleagues that on March 4th and 5th, 1849, for 24 hours, under the statutes, regulations, machinations, ruminations of federal laws prescribing presidential succession, Atchison became the official acting president of the United States. Thus, within our President's Day party planner, we should note with the greatest solemnity the Atchison moment, which takes place at 5.56 and 15 seconds a.m. as an official micro-holiday in the poetic dawn of President's Day. It's just over a second, and I propose that we all gather in Village Square to say his name proudly, loudly, Atchison. Then we crisply move on to Zachary Taylor. <laughs> the good How news much calculus is, did you use for this? It's all third grade math. I'm patient. <laughs> the good news is that for 24 hours, Atchison didn't do a single thing wrong. His blemish-free record in high office stands as the high watermark for presidential deliberation, decorum, and accomplishment because he humbly opted not to accomplish anything at all. In light of Atchison's unique, albeit fleetingly brief, place in presidential history, I have created myself, I took it upon myself, to create the Atchison Presidential Library. (laughs) It's a a memo. I maintain the entire Atchison Library in this shoebox. It's a small piece of paper containing a personal note penned by Atchison himself to his personal assistant, written on Monday morning during the waning hours of his term of office. It's a shopping list. Oats for the horse, some boot black, and a firkin of whale oil. Oh, my goodness. Well, that's... Into this library? I'm sorry? You charge admission to this library? No, it's all free, and I'm happy to stamp your book. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, this brings up, uh, after that wonderful uh, uh, rendition of all of the presidents, then then we must spend the majority of our time then on the longest-serving president, Franklin Delano Roosevelt. Absolutely. uh, And all of his accomplishments, which since his... Uh, since his death, uh, there has been a party that has done nothing but for the last, how many years ago is that now, uh, for 60, 70, 80 years, mm-hmm. has done nothing but try to undo every single thing that he did while he, he was in office as our longest serving president. This is just wonderful, Pete. Thank you. Well, you know, I'm I'm sort of a stickler for presidential detail that doesn't really matter, but <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, 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 see. I know that they did the presidential dollars, and I don't recall seeing the Atchison dollar. Should no, I contact the mint? It was actually an Atchison halfpenny because of the fact that you know his term was so short. I see. So it's a penny. No, it's actually a mill. It's a mill. It's a mill. It's, a mill. It's, yeah, it's, it's, it's a, a it's a green stamp. It's a half a mill. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> well, um, that I, before I, my I, time. Yes, I talked about uh, streams gushing from that wellhead out of this uh, main topic, and that was certainly uh, that was a long stream. I won't say what, but it was a long stream. Well, it's all about President's Day and trying there to elevate, go. elevate, if you yeah. will, yeah. the meaning of this holiday that is sort of trying still these days to find itself. You did put us on a new level, Pete. I'm not going to say what much, the level yeah. was either, but it's a new level. <laughs> anyway. 
how about something very near and dear to my heart? We 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 kind of touched on it a little bit, but uh, as a, a, a an older gentleman, Medicare and Social Security I, off the table, off the table, off the ta- just something that just the what what the attacks being made on both are they're they're frightening. Not just for myself because evidently they're saying, okay, if you're on it now, you're protected. We can't touch you. That's that's fine, but that that doesn't really. That doesn't sit well with me. If you're going to attack something like that, something that has been universally touted as, a, you know, something, you know, a, a policy that just transcends politics. I don't know why, what, what, how much, how much mileage you're going to get out of that. Everyone's going to get old if they're lucky. And it just is not, it's not something that I see as being a viable way to to advance your party's policies. It depends if you're talking about voters or donors, because uh, corporations would benefit immensely if they didn't have to contribute their portion uh, to their matching portions to Social Security so that's true. Uh, and, and Medicare. So I think yeah. um, that's, um, that's a very good way to court uh, donors, if that's what you're uh, primarily interested in. Well, politics, I think, as I've that- said before, politics to me is not a business. It's an art, a sloppy art, yeah. kind of disjointed one, one with a lot of bad art in it. But it has to it has to look beyond the dollars and cents. It has to look beyond a balanced budget. I'm sorry, you're never going to bring in things in under budget. You're not going to be on budget in government. It can't happen. It's just impossible. The you Eiffel can... Tower was built under budget and under time. Yes, and people hated it, but it just... Well, there has to be some regard for the uh, the the people of this nation and how you treat them. Well, uh, Nick, I'll say the quiet part out loud as what I think is is the quiet part, which is the um, I'm sorry to say, I think a lot of it is uh, pandering to the to the to the myth of the the welfare queen, and that uh, if uh, these. Yeah. People are going to be coming up and taking away our social security. They shouldn't be entitled to it. It's ours, not theirs kind of thing. And um, that's I've seen some articles on that lately, and uh, I find that very disturbing. And I don't know. I'm interested to see if anybody else thinks that there's a that uh, plays into the psychology of that appeal. Well, again, yeah, that I mean, the welfare queen, you're, you're going back to uh, President Reagan. That was one of his constructs. Uh, mm. They found this, um, I think it was centered on a woman in Chicago. And she was known, I think or she was known basically as Madam Somebody. <clears throat> and yes, yes she let's, had. Let's, let's find a corner case and generalize it mm-hmm. and claim that there are millions of them. Exactly right. I mean, she certainly was an example of abuse of the system. I mean, look at yeah, the PPPs. Yeah. And I think in rhetoric, one of the things we teach is how to construct an argument in order to try to win people on your side. So let's, I, I mean, deconstructing Reagan, he set up a lot of what we call straw men arguments. You find uh, one of the more boring examples, and then you construct this whole argument around why that particular individual is bad and why we all ought to hate that particular person. He did that with the teachers unions. He did that with welfare. He did that with a number of other policy directions that he wanted to go into. Air traffic controllers. uh, The air traffic controllers, exactly. 
And unfortunately, we as people in America fall trapped to that. In her book, Heather McGee describes how it is that political parties and politicians spend an exorbitant amount of time trying to convince people to uh, adhere to things and policies uh, that are actually against their own personal self-interest. And we do it. We do it. We follow along with that. It is against social policy and the philosophy of this country for us to believe that every single person ought to stand individually. And if you can't make it, then so be it. Well, let's bring back the poorhouses. Let's let people then live on the street. Let's let people die because there is no health care. If that's the real basic philosophy of this country, which some of the politicians will have us believe, then it is important. It is important for us then to move, to go someplace else, to another country then where that particular philosophy is not pervasive. However, fortunately, there are those of us of reason who do believe that our experiment is one of social good. When we talk about the law, for example, one of the main tenets of law is, is it in the public good? Is it in the public interest? Not just is it something and stuff that we ought to pursue, but how does it advance us as a society? Dr. Jo- Dr. Walker-Jones did bring up some great points about this being, you know, more of a, there has to be some aspect of social responsibility and the social contract. And what I know of, of you from my years here in Franklin and your years serving is that you didn't get into politics to get rich. You didn't get into politics to uh, to hear yourself talk and, and orate. You got into politics because you believe in the social contract. You believe that there's something that you could do with others to help the people that you serve and by extension to serve as an example to other legislative bodies. So how do you feel about this? Well, uh, you know, I look to, you know, why did these programs come into being? For example, you know, why did President Roosevelt think we needed Social Security? Mm-hmm. Why did uh, LBJ think we needed Medicare? Uh, and I will say presidents going back to Abraham Lincoln were f- trying to g- develop some system of national health insurance. And it wasn't until we got to uh, Barack Obama that we ended up with Obamacare and and medical coverage for everyone. Uh, you know, the object of government is to help people help themselves. The object of government mm-hmm. is to do everything for people, but to give mm-hmm. them an opportunity uh, to participate um, in the society. And I was uh, I was amazed to learn just a few weeks ago, and I'm looking for the pr- particular provisions in the Massachusetts Constitution, but apparently in the Constitution of Massachusetts, there is an obligation and a duty on the government to help people achieve happiness. And uh, it certainly is in mm. the Declaration of Independence that uh, we are all uh, endowed by a creator with uh, the ability to pursue life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. So that's in one of our founding documents. It doesn't appear in the U.S. Constitution, but that concept is part of the Massachusetts Constitution. And uh, how can you be happy if you're hungry? How can you be happy if you can't you know, pay your bills? Uh, you know, and, and it's a duty and obligation of our government to 
uh, help people help themselves to achieve that happiness. And I've always said to me, the most important component of our government is education. And education mm-hmm. is that great equalizer, mm-hmm. is that great uh, piece that helps us to you know achieve happiness, to uh, develop a career, to think for ourselves, to be independent, uh, and to give back to our community. So I think of all of those objects of our government and, you know, social security came into being because we saw so many people reaching, uh, you know, later years in life with nothing with which to uh, live out the rest of their years. And you can't expect people to work uh, into their 80s and 90s, although many people do. But, uh, you know, there are some people who just cannot work uh, after a certain uh, a certain age and, you know, having some sort of a program out there that will supplement uh, your ability to live out your years is, is important. And Social Security has been that moral fabric that has helped many an elderly person uh, survive. Uh, and Medicare is uh, to to help and provide uh, health care for those folks. I, I still uh, laugh at the uh, the one debate in one of the presidential elections where uh, uh, a gentleman went up to one of the candidates and he said, I want you to keep the government out of my Medicare. And, uh, you know, (laughs) that line still (laughs) kills me to this day because people are so reliant on that program uh, for, you know, the basic health care that they fail to recognize, well, that's a government program that was instituted for your benefit and for your health. And, God forbid, uh, you know, I'll do everything in my power to make sure that that stays intact. And it's frightening to me when I hear people talk about getting rid of these programs. It's a it's a part of life. And the last piece I'll say, I can recall one of my children uh, when she got her first job, she was going through her paycheck with me and uh, mm. going through some of the items and the uh, the deductions on her check and said, you know, why am I at 16 paying Social Security tax? The program will probably not be around when I'm old enough to get it. Oh, God. Why am I doing that? And I said, well, let me let me share with you that uh, there are probably some people who pay their real estate and their property taxes. And knowing that that money is going to uh, the education system in the community who are probably saying, I don't have any kids in the school. Why am I paying for uh, a uh, an education tax? And I say that is the nature of our social responsibility to one another. And that's how we pay it forward in some instances and how we pay it back in some other instances. And the, and the government was formed to you know, have these safety nets in place so that we can all live together peacefully, hopefully, uh, but more importantly, uh, are able to pursue that level of happiness. And that Social Security deduction on your paycheck is your contribution today. And uh, you'll be making contributions throughout your life, but you should feel good about that because what you are doing is helping someone else help themselves, just like other people helped you help yourself. And uh, I'm happy to report that some 15 years later, uh, that child is is doing very well and is a success, largely in part to uh, 
uh, a great education foundation that was provided mm-hmm. to her in Franklin, Massachusetts. So I'm glad I had that conversation, uh, but I think it fit in well with what we're talking about here today. Yeah, I think yeah, she's right. very lucky to have someone uh, like you explain that to her because and but it just struck me how America as a as a whole, you know, people do struggle with that idea about um the common good, the shared sense of uh, the community benefit of any action. It's uh, like something in Europe you just take for granted. Uh, that's, that's just something that's always there and always has been. The, you know, the, you look after the people in the village kind of thing. Uh, so it's it's interesting how America lost that in the way, I mean, it seems to make sense in the way it evolved and developed as a society of, you know, people trying to, um, in, in many places, mm-hmm find their own way and not seek to create well what massachusetts, was the West- massachusetts is the exception i guess where <laughs> there was a, a deliberate attempt to create a new city upon a hill but right. uh most of the american colonial settlement was um well i'll say freebooters but people trying to uh, make a well it was it was part of the great western expansion you had all this open space to go into and you had to stand on your own two feet and that became uh you know kind of a mythos that uh people lived by you can't stand right. on your own two feet if you can't go into the wilderness and build a cabin and exist and eat grizzly bear you you know you don't deserve to make it right so but it was a, that was a tremendous it. opportunity that was denied most people in europe oh the, yeah the no, land was that, all yeah. taken there was the there wasn't that economic opportunity so i guess the trade-off was that there was a lot of social control by the landowners that kind of thing as you're you know they took their responsibilities seriously but uh america you know jefferson uh his idea of democracy was to shake off that kind of um paternalism anyway so i'm arguing in circles here the paternalism good or bad you know community good behavior mm-hmm. social the kind of things that jeff was trying to inculcate in his kids there um it, it, you know that's it goes both ways well you know therein lies the the tension you know, to what extent is help warranted and to what extent is that fierce independence that Americans talk about uh, threatened by that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. There is the the idea that, you know, you're taking away my right to do what I feel is right, what's right in my eye. And that's that's a very that's a slippery slope. You know, how do you how do you walk that ridge uh, without falling off one side or the other? You know, it also brings into mind to me this uh, the myth of the self-made man uh, in the context mm-hmm. of the conversation. Um, you know, when you see uh, a very successful businessman or businesswoman uh, standing up and saying, you know, I, I, I did this all myself. I started with nothing and uh, I created this. And I often think, well, geez, that, uh, that education that the government provided to you probably lent a hand into who you are today. Uh, those roads and bridges that you carry the materials to and from your business probably helped you uh, achieve the success that you had today. The, the clean water that you uh, drink and the air that you breathe and the uh, you know the uh, social service networks that are out there that uh, provide, you know help and uh, keep your employees healthy and uh, keep them coming to work probably had something to do with it. So um, are you truly self-made or did you take advantage of some of these uh, these government programs that help uh, put you into place? Um, that's a that's a discussion I always love to have with uh, with folks. You mean actually having a stable environment means something? 
One would think, and uh, you know, uh, just having a, a robust transportation network, public health system, clean uh, clean climate, and clean air and clean water, yeah, those things actually contribute to. Uh, a happy life for many folks. And we yeah. should not forget that. Uh, and remember that most of those items that I described are attributable to the government that does things that individuals can't do, but as a collective mm -hmm. group, we can do them together. Well, that brings up, you know, the government being able to do something that brings up another point that I mentioned in the introduction. A, what does anybody feel is the a move the government might need to make in order to combat something that came up, that's come up recently that uh, was disclosed, well, not disclosed, but it's something that most people know, is the higher, the rampant inflation being driven by grocery prices and by the cost of gasoline. Now, gasoline gets you from one place to another, and just about everyone needs it right now, but the oil company profits are through the roof, the highest they've ever had. Is there something where the government needs to step in and not nationalize or anything like that that's ridiculous but there needs to be a an attempt made through legislation or through perhaps per persuasion that the oil companies might take a closer harder look at what they've always said you know where they're taking all of the risks they're they're out there drilling and they're out there processing and they're taking the risks and they deserve the profits and saying that well Maybe you're gouging just a tiny bit. Any thoughts on that? Uh, gouging is the American way, Nick. I'm no, not sure what no, your no. objection no, is. The, <laughs> the, the price is what a market will bear. So if uh, people are willing to pay it, then that's onus is on them. When it's uh, a commodity that be... is essential, when it's a commodity that is essential to your right. daily life. It may be essential people. right now. But I'm not yeah. sure in the long term that it's <laughs> sure. going to be as essential as you describe. And I think the market is going to do what the market does very well uh, on, on these oil pieces. Uh, it was funny, Nick, as you were talking about paying for gas, you know, it reminded me that uh, I've been driving, driving a fully electric vehicle for the past three years and uh, have not been to a gas station in a long time. And the uh, funniest thing is I took some folks to a museum a couple of weeks ago. And, uh, you know, one of the gentlemen said, well, I, I want to contribute to your gas. And they said, well, um, you know, that's a very nice gesture, but uh, we didn't use any today. So uh, you hold on to that uh, that money. And, uh, you know, uh, yeah, I generate electricity. But, uh, you know, for me to fill up my car with electricity costs me about twelve dollars uh, to get a full yeah. tank and yeah. uh, it's remarkable that you know that shift is happening uh, by 2035 it will be illegal to sell an internal combustion engine in massachusetts so i think that's going to have a lot to do with that particular commodity sure there'll be others to follow it but uh uh, interesting pathways ahead of us over the next mm -hmm. uh, couple of decades. You know, um, as I reflect over the the role of the presidents and President's Day and all of this, it seems to me that we're missing a point when it comes to the idea that our people understand exactly how this country works ah, uh, yeah. or that the president contributes even through uh, their State of the Union address to a better understanding of how the country works. A great example was the other night when Biden, for example, started to talk about 
the fees, the exorbitant fees that some of our credit institutions charge folks for missing a payment in just one day. I thought that there used to be uh, a 10-day grace period between the time when your payment was due and before any fees could be imposed. No longer. You miss the day you miss the day when your payment is due. The next day they can charge you a fee. Now you can call them up and ask them to uh, to remove it. And then one courtesy time that they will grant you that. But then every time after that, they'll go, oh, no, we've already granted you a uh, a courtesy. The fees themselves. Uh, you miss a payment. There's a forty dollar fee. If the payment was twenty dollars, the fee is still forty dollars. And the president the other day, I think, resonated with millions of people who have no say when the credit institution changes that. They just change it on their own. You don't you don't have anyone negotiating for you except for the federal government. And I think, you know, again, because of most of us as sheeple don't understand how the system works, we don't think that we can really fight the system uh, and we don't believe that the government is out there trying to help us. Therefore, government then becomes a part of the bane of my life because they don't do anything for me. How are they helping me as an individual? Even though I love it when it snows two or three feet and the uh, and the plows do go up and down my street to clean it off. Uh, most of us don't recognize that that's part of our social fabric, our construct of taxes and government responsibility in terms of helping us uh, to get out of the house, to get to work. So help me out, folks. When it comes to the idea that the president has influence over the things that really impact my life, help me to better understand what we're doing in order to try to make sure that our citizens understand that. Um, I think Biden went a long way the other day in terms of at least saying, oh, we're going to we're going to change these. Unfortunately, he his rhetoric was all wrong. He can't change, even through executive order, uh, the fees that the credit institution change. That's going to have to take a law from Congress, uh, and then he'll be able to sign it. But it hasn't happened yet. And there were some people the next day that started to say, oh, by the way, Biden said that our uh, uh, those fees are going to go away. Instead of paying $80 or uh, $40, I'm going to pay $8. Isn't he a great guy? Well, the beauty about that speech is that he got to attack an enemy that we all hate. Ghost fees from banks, hotels, the travel industry, airlines. There are a whole lot of people out there, institutions, that he could easily take a swipe at uh, with you know, some reason, justification that everybody could get behind. And, you know, it, as president, it was probably not a horrible use of a bully pulpit. If that's all he does is use a bully pulpit, perhaps to inspire the movement or or the instantiation of some kind of legislation on the issue, you know, that's not a horrible thing. You know, the president, if not having direct control of something, certainly he has influence. No, and then I think that's that uh, that's that's I, I agree with that 100 percent as I stutter through that. But, yeah, I do agree with that. Um, and the thing, the picture that it brought to my mind when you're talking about that was a picture from the 60s. Lyndon Johnson in the halls of Congress has got Wayne Morse of Oregon up against the wall, and he is literally buttonholing. He's got him. He's got his finger in his chest, 
And he's saying, why did you vote against this? Why did you do this? And that is where I think the power can come from. He he can't make people do everything. He cannot he cannot legislate. He cannot with an executive order and a huge signature taking up more space than the order itself does change the lives of people. But with influence, with persuasive tactics, be they bullying, be they, you know, just sweet talking couple of extra, you know, pieces of legislation in your favor that bring jobs to your state. Yeah, there's what you can do as president. And I don't think there's anything wrong with it as long as I agree with what you're doing. Like most people, I'm sorry. <laughs> but, you know, it, it certainly it's 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 always do I like what you're doing? Do I like how you you're acting? Do I like how you're behaving? We're never going to come to 100 percent consensus on that. We're always going to have a divide. And I think the divide is good. There is no discussion without dissension. There has to be there has to be an argument. You don't make a decision without an argument. I well, think there's also no discussion without commercials. And we're going to take a break right now on more perfect union. And we'll be right back after this. Our President's Day sale is on, and it's time to rake in the savings. You want your very own president? We've got them all in stock. From Abraham to Zachary, A to Z, our new and slightly used presidents are all fully guaranteed. So get on down to D.C. and shop for the president of your choice. Also, check out our congressional scratch and dent sale at our super crazy Washington, D.C. President's Day sale. Now back to more Perfect Union. <laughs> well, another more Perfect Union hour is flown by. And we do, as always, have to say goodbye until next week. Now, if you'd like to weigh in on our discussions, we would love to hear from you. You can email us at info at franklin.tv. That's I-N-F-O at franklin.tv. If you enjoyed our discussion, please let us know. Or as always, if you disagree, all the more reason to let us know. You can also share or listen to this program or any of our past episodes anytime. Our podcasts are available online at our website, wfpr.fm. And for our guests, Dr. Natalia Linos, Dr. Michael Walker-Jones, and our representative on Beacon Hill, Jeff Roy, along with Peter Jay and my co-host, Chris Wolf. I'm Nick Remesong. Thanks for listening and joining our shared journey toward a more perfect union. This is Franklin Public Radio.